0: Let me pray and then we'll jump into Matthew 22. Um, If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and switch or open up to Matthew 22 and we'll jump in starting in verse 15 um, after we pray. So let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its um, for its promises of what it can do for us and through us. We pray now, Lord, because of these things, that it would come now and do these things in us. We, we recognize that we need help. We recognize that we need um, to be pointed to Jesus and his righteousness for us. Um, and b- based on that, we know that we need to um, know how we need to live. We need to know wh- what are the ways that we should be affected. Um, and so I pray that you would come now and use your word to do that. As we look at these interactions with Jesus, with the uh, religious leaders at the time, I pray that you would help us not just kind of get the story down, but ask ourselves, in light of what I'm reading and how he interacts with them, what does it mean for me? I, I pray that you would start here in this heart. That I don't want to just know things about you, Jesus. I want to know you. And so would you come now and cause us all to have this posture towards your word? We love you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, let me give you a little bit of heads up on what's going on so you can be able to follow with me. Uh, we're starting in Matthew 22, starting at verse 15. And here's kind of the layout of the way it's going to look today so we can know uh, <laughs> how does this look. Because we're looking at, 20, starting at twenty-two fifteen, and we're going all the way to 46. And so... You know, it's a lot. So let's, let's look at it. The first thing is uh, just in the sovereignty of God. This is just a really cool thing, I thought. In the sovereignty of God, since tax day is tomorrow, April the 15th, um, we're going to be talking about taxes today. So God like set this up four years ago, two year and a half years ago, whenever we started Matthew, so that it would fall as we talk about taxes the next day. So um, lesson one, everybody get your taxes done. That has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. So let me let me start with verse 15 and let me show you um, what are the things that are going on here and present to you what I think is a, my challenge for you today. So if you look at verse 15, what you're going to see here, it says, the Pharisees went and plotted how to untangle. So we just saw last week, um, Jesus had basically kind of handed the tales to the Pharisees and shown them, you know, you don't know what you're doing. And he throws these three parables to them and they're just confounded. They don't understand. He's showing them how much they don't um, they don't follow him. He, he's been pretty straightforward with, with, with those parables. And now at verse 15, it's kind of the regroup of, of the religious leaders. And the next three sections are um, these religious leaders. We're going to see the Pharisees and the Herodians, the first one right there at 15, and if you look over at 23, verse 23, you'll see it's the Sadducees. It says, that same day, the Sadducees. And if you skip down to 34, you'll see, um, but when the Pharisees, and it says a lawyer. So we've got these kind of three sections here, and all three sections start the exact same. The religious leaders at the time, whether they're the Pharisees or the Sadducees, want to come and ask a question, but the question has an intended meaning of trapping Jesus. That's, that's what's going on in these three particular times. And then the last section, starting at verse 41, you'll see now the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them a question. So like three questions come to him, and finally Jesus is like, everybody done? All right, my turn. And then he, you know, he launches in and kind of destroys them, if you will. Um, so that's, that's the kind of layout here. Now here's, here's my um, challenge for you today. Because we're just reading... Um, Three questions of religious leaders coming in successive little question asking times with Jesus. And we're just kind of reading the story. And as the trick can be for us to just read the story, get the story, and be like, Yeah, Jesus, you told them. Woo! And then that's it. We're like, all right, so Jesus is awesome. Like he's good at arguing. And like "I, I don't want for us to just read these three stories and that be the only deduction we get. Instead, because the prob- we're all really good at reading the story. And we love entertainment. And we love the story. But the better thing for us to do is after we ask that question. Say, based on these interactions 2,000 years ago with Jesus and these particular religious leaders. What do those things kind of translate to me in my life? Um, what does this mean for me? Not, not to me. We're, we're good at interpreting. We, we have enough interpreters. What does this mean for me? As I read these things what does this mean for me? And the trick is, what we're seeing here um, is three attempts to trap Jesus. And so I can't just take three attempts at, to trap Jesus and say, don't try to trap Jesus by asking him about taxes. That doesn't, that doesn't serve you well at all. So what, what I want to do is, and we're going to look at these three attempts to trap Jesus, but we're going to take a step back to be able to try to see the big picture of what Jesus is trying to teach in these three attempts to trap him. And those Those three things will apply to us. So the three things that we're going to see, I've entitled this um, Kingdom, uh, Teachings on Present Kingdom Life. So you can see it, three teachings on present kingdom life. So in these interactions that he's having with these Pharisees, Sadducees, um, what he's going to, as he kind of concludes each conversation, he does a a broad teaching for present kingdom life. And this is what I mean by present kingdom life. Um, We believe that the kingdom is already not yet. So that means one day there will be a final kingdom that will live with Christ in heaven in utter perfection. But there's also an element of the fact that we're in the kingdom already, even though we're living in this particular um, life on earth in South Carolina, of all places, right? And so here we are. I love South Carolina, but here we are. Like, And so we're saying, how does um, that kingdom life inform this kingdom life? And so we're going to see three things here in these three conversations that are going to inform us in our present kingdom life, the way that we're supposed to live right now. So these interactions with these people aren't just random stories for us to be like, yeah, Jesus. Instead, they inform Three specific ways that we're supposed to live right now, presently, in this particular life right now. And so um, that's my challenge first, is to try to help us see those three teachings. And even more so than that, is to take those teachings and you not hear them and say, okay, number one I'm supposed to do do this, check box, got that. That's the first moral decision I'm supposed to make or advice. But instead, and number two, number three, I don't want these to just feel like, hey, as a Christian, these are three things that Jesus thinks you should do. And you say, well, I'll try to get to those. And maybe if I get them done, I'll check my box. Instead, I want to take these three things, ground them all in the gospel and say, you can't do these things without Jesus's death, burial and resurrection. Also, because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection at for you, and since you've been declared righteous now, from that you're so overwhelmed, you're so amazed that he would do this. Of course you want to do these things. So that's my challenge today. And I'm hoping, by God's grace, that um, we'll be able to do that. So uh, the, second, the first service, we had to start at like 6. So we finished right at 11. It took me about five hours to get it all done. But we're going to... So, Hope y'all brought a sandwich. Um, we, we didn't. We, we did go long, but we, we started at the normal time. All right, so let's look at verse 15, and we'll, we'll get it all down here. Um, it says, now the Pharisees went up and plotted how to entangle him. So this is the regroup after over the, the, the previous parables that he had told, how, how he kind of, you know, just made him look silly. They're like, that didn't work. What else? You know, so they, they go out and they say, they think about how we're going to entangle him in his talk. They're wanting to trap him. But Jesus is God you're not going to be able to trap God. He's, he's always smarter than you. And so that's the case here. And they sent their disciples along with him, even with the Herodians. I mean, Matthew's writing this to this Jewish first century um, readers, and they're thinking to themselves, as we should be, Herodians? Are you serious? So let's all feel that way. Yes. So here's why this is so crazy. Um, the Pharisees had theological enemies, and that were the Sadducees, which we're going to talk about in the next section. But the Pharisees also had political enemies who were the Herodians. The Herodians loved Herod and loved the state and were all about funding the state to have this supreme power. And the Pharisees were their political enemies. And so we can even see that there's a collaboration or a collusion of wickedness here where the Pharisees are willing to say, oh yeah, we dislike Jesus so much there's such a growing disdain in us so much for Jesus we're willing to partner with the Herodians in order to take him down we dislike Jesus so much I mean this is an amazing wicked hatred for the son of God that the Pharisees have as a matter of fact Jesus points that out um pretty quickly we'll see that in the end of in the middle of 18 where he says he's aware of their malice this Greek word in malice is evil it's it's evil the way they are towards him so in the timeline of Jesus's life, we're into this conversation with the Pharisees. Um, as I said previously, we're, we're in the last week of Jesus. This is probably Wednesday. So Jesus, the, the fake final, you know, false trial of Jesus happens Thursday. He's crucified late, late into the evening, Thursday, Friday morning. This is 24 hours. This, is, this conversation with these particular people is on Wednesday. Within 24 hours, Jesus is going to be filled with such anxiety for the cross, he'll be sweating drops of blood in the garden before he's arrested. So this is 24 hours. So these are some of the final thoughts, teachings that Jesus is having with these religious leaders. As a matter of fact, um, in verse 46, these final teachings is, is, so, uh, is so powerful that in 46 it says, after that, I mean, we've seen it over and over in Matthew. They're trying to trap him, trying to trap him, trying to trap him. Verse 46 says, they finally stopped. Like they said, we're not going to ask him any more questions. There's nothing we can do. We have to go a different route to get this guy. We can't a- try to trap him anymore. Thus, the false trial. And then within, within 48 hours, he's, he's been crucified. So here we see that in verse 16, it says, they sent their disciples, that's the Pharisees, along with the Herodians saying... Teacher, now this is all flowerly false feelings. They don't feel this way. Teach I, Rabbi, we 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 look up to you so much. This is all just big fat lies. They don't feel this way at all. Um, we know that you are truly that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and that you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. This is all just big fat lies. And Jesus cuts through it all very quickly. We'll see how he knows that. Tell us then. So they want to trap him, so they're gonna put all this trapping in the question of are we supposed to pay taxes to caesar are we supposed to pay and so they say tell us then what it, what do you think so question 1 of today is it lawful to pay taxes to caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus, aware of their malice, aware of their evil, meaning he knows that this big, huge, flowery introduction, this empty flowery that they give in verse sixteen, is all just that empty flattery. He's not, he's not buying it at all. Um, it says, and Jesus, aware of their malice, said, right here, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? So immediately he knows that this is just a huge hypocritical um, situation that they're trying to trap him, and he gives this answer. Show me the coin for the tax. And so somebody gets him a denarius, and and they brought a denarius, so he grabs a coin. And much like our coins, there was was a picture of Caesar on it, and he holds it up, and he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Let's stop right here, and let's just kind of um, examine without the rest, because generally, If you've been in church or you've heard this verse before, a lot of times, that's the verse, that's the half of the verse that we've quoted, right? We've all been quoted, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So we got to pay our taxes and no one finishes the sentence. But let's just, let's stop right there. Um, The the, the second half of the sentence is the whole point. But let's, let's start with the big larger point, but let's start with this first half um, where he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus could have stopped here and made his point by saying, hey, You live in a society where Caesar is over this particular society, and there's a government um, that Caesar controls, though we may disagree. And so if he says, pay these particular taxes, then you should be a good citizen and pay the particular taxes. Whose picture is on this? Um, Probably... It says Caesar. On the back of it, there was probably, this is all conjecture. One of the commentators said, if you flip it over, there was probably like a Greek goddess kind of picture on the back. And so he flips, some commentator said, so, and he turned it around saying, but render unto God the things that are God. It's not this fake false God oh, that's, that's on this coin, but God. But that's all conjecture. We don't know that he did that. Um, but the point is, he could have stopped and said, render unto Caesar just the things that are Caesar. Now, Spurgeon says... Uh, as he's looking at this particular conversation with the Pharisees, that coin that they just brought, that coin bought their own confusion because he's about to mess them up when it comes to the second half. And so he says, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, which is not what they necessarily wanted to hear. Certainly the Herodians are like, yes! Um, But then he does this next part where he says, and to God the things that are God's. Meaning, we live here, in this particular time, they lived there in that particular time. All of us, in some way, in some point of history, are under some kind of power, under under some kind of state power, Um, whether it's a democracy or whatever. I mean, we all have lived, and they're under Caesar. They all live, and we all have lived in some kind of power. And what he's saying here, render unto Caesar things that are Caesar, but to God the things that are God, is while you live in whatever place you live, remember that the state has some power, But God still has all power, and he's always sitting on his throne. He's always ruling and reigning powerfully on his throne completely. And so since that is the case, um, we, as we're here on earth, cannot love this particular earth more than we love heaven. Because even though you might be a citizen of South Carolina, North Carolina, the United States... More supremely than that, more importantly than that, if you're a, a Christian, you're a citizen of heaven. This is what it says in Philippians 3, um, verse 20. Let me read it to you, Philippians 3:20. As we're studying through Philippians, um, Jack actually was preaching this particular verse, but let me read Philippians 3:20. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for those that are in, in Christ... For those that kind of read this. And it says render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. But also render unto God the things that are God's. We must in our hearts and minds. God must in our hearts and minds. Live and maintain his rightful dominion over us. So when we're reading this conversation. What's the first thing that we should get from this. In regard to kingdom living. Here's here's number one. Um, The first teaching on present kingdom living is this. It's kind of two pronged if you will. Number one. Live as a good citizen of both state and of heaven. So you're responsible as a believer to do both. And doing one to the exclusion of the other um, makes you legalistic or just a big, huge licentious sinner. So if you live too much for the state, you enjoy earth too much, then you neglect your right standing and and, and thoughts of God and you live... um, not for God's glory, but your own or the states or whatever. And you you say crazy things about how, you know, America's greater than Jesus or, you know, crazy things that you hear people say something like, you talk more about the country than Jesus. And that's kind of what I think. But then if it's the other way... um, and all you are is focused on the kingdom of heaven, and you never think about the state you're in, then you don't want to actually improve the city you're in. Like, God cares about, he didn't just save you and pull you up to heaven. He left you here for 40 or 50 years, and he cares about the people that are around you, and he wants you to care about the city and the lostness. And so he wants you to engage in the culture in the city in such a way that's not sinful, that doesn't engage in sinful activity, but care about it. And so he wants you to be a good citizen of the state, but all the while remembering that you are a citizen of heaven more preeminently than anything else. So let me, let me unpack what I think some of this means for us. Because um, there's, there's some real profound things that Jesus is teaching um, as well in this particular verse where he's telling us this. And I think the profound that he's actually teaching us, thing that he's teaching us is that he's pleading with, pleading with us, I have a list now, pleading with us to have a deep, deep love of the sovereignty of God, the the rule and reign of God over all things. I'm going to get to that in a second. But um, Peter and Paul both write about our responsibility as citizens um, of, of whatever state we're in. I'm just going to read Paul. You can read Peter if you want. If you want to write it down, you can go to 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. But I'm just going to read Paul in Romans 13, 1 through 7. This is what Paul writes to us in regard to You're saved, you're a believer, and you're living here for this particular time as a citizen of the state. What should you do? So we're talking about that first part about living as a citizen of the state. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Every ruler for all time of all history has been instituted by God. Now, we can look at that and say, oh, there's been some pretty terrible ones. Yes, I know. But here's still the truth in Romans 13.1. They've all been instituted by God. And he's telling us to be subject to them. There's limitations, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. Be subject. But in a general principle, governments over us are good things because they provide for us in some measure stability. I know there's, you know, there's the anomalies or the exceptions. But in in general, it is. Um, He says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. So we don't resist what God has appointed because he's put it there. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to to good conduct, but to bad. Rulers in general principles over us and authority keep society moving forward in what would be good conduct. And that's good. We want that. We want people that aren't running rampant and breaking laws and um, causing distress for us. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Let's just skip down to verse 6. It says, for the same reason, you should also pay your taxes. Authorities are ministers of God attending to this thing. Pay to all what's owed them. Taxes to whoever taxes are owed. Revenue to whose revenue is owed. Respect to so those who are in, in uh, ruling. Honor to honor. So we can see that God has put this in, in a general principle. Ruling authority over us. And we should be good citizens. So a teaching of present kingdom life is that I'm to engage in this particular um, government that I'm under as a good citizen. And this is what, how that looks. Um, positively, it looks like we should obey the speed limits, for example. So yesterday, when I drove to Columbia to watch the spring Gamecock football game, yes, Gamecocks, when they played the Gamecocks, Gamecocks played the Gamecocks, the Gamecocks won. Um, there were times where the people in front of me were like, you know, come on, slow driver, you know? And so whenever I accelerated to get around them, that's breaking the commandments of God. And maybe even when I looked over at them in a way that was like, are you serious? Um, that, that That wasn't pleasing to God either. Or if I have to pass them in the right lane and I say, slower traffic, keep right. You know, that's not... That, it's big signs, but it's not my responsibility to do that. So, um, my point is um, as good citizens, we should obey the speed limits. We should also pay our taxes honestly. So, as you're filing taxes, you are to tell it the truth about everything, report everything, and say everything that's supposed to be on it. We're also supposed to vote in elections. You should vote. I'm not saying who for. But you should vote. God has given you this precious ability to be able to um, be a part of uh, this government, where you have a right, you have a vote. You can say, you can do something as a good citizen. You should participate. You shouldn't just say, "I don't like any of the candidates. So I'm not voting." No, no, you vote. God says we should be a part of our government by voting, supporting the endeavors that are going on in our city. If the city's doing something and it helps the city, we should be a part of that endeavor. We want a good city should be a part of it. We should also, this is more, really important, speak well of those in governing authorities and pray for them. Whether you agree or not, you should pray for them. God wants you to pray for every ruling and authority over you. Um, that's showing God that you are willing to submit to what Romans 13, the principles of Romans 13, 1 through 7. It doesn't matter to me whether you agree with them or not. You should pray for them. This is what God says. Now, that's being a good citizen in the positive sense, but I don't want to say the negative sense, but being a good citizen also has some limitations, is maybe the way to say it. And this is what I mean. As Christians, being a good citizen also means speaking up and um, in some ways opposing the state verbally not with craziness but verbally making good cogent arguments that isn't resulting to name calling but actually making arguments that lay out biblical principles that you might believe in where they the citizen or where the state strays away from the legitimate god-given function it has um, the state has legitimate God-given functions. And when it strays away from those things, we should... Or when it violates the moral law of God, we have a responsibility as a good citizen to say things. Which is why, if you've been on Twitter this week, you've seen an uprising of Christians about the Gosnell case. This is, a, this is an atrocity. There's murdering of babies. And we, we can't stand for that. And we have to say, this is wrong. Um, not, I, don't, I don't like to speak politically... But I think all of us can agree that this is just this is wrong. Um, and so as a good citizen, we should speak up to things that matter about the city. That is wrong. There should not be those things happening in this particular time in our, in our government. And so he's telling us to be a good citizen of the state. But also, more importantly, the, the place we find that foundation is by being a good citizen of heaven. And trusting in and submitting ourselves completely to God, realizing that we're a citizen of heaven before we're a citizen of here. So that informs the way we do this. Um, We look to Christ, we follow Christ, we know His word, and we we submit ourselves completely to Him. And that tells us how we. And we also submit ourselves to the sovereignty of God. And this is this is where I think the most profound thing comes. There is a a profundity about this text that just means profoundness about this particular thing, where He says and to God the things that are God. Let, let's kind of take ourselves back and consider what just happened here. Herod was a pagan. A pagan who did not like the people of God and was not on board with Jesus whatsoever. And Jesus tells his particular people, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In essence, give the money that you're supposed to give to Herod, and that money that you give to Herod is going to continue of him having this pagan rule over this particular place now there is in some senses where him being here is giving us a little bit of protection he's providing a, a structure for us to live in and have these kind of things but in its essence and his wholeness this is a very pagan thing and so it's kind of curious right for jesus to say give your money to that huh give my money to a pagan ruler that doesn't love jesus that seems curious, right? So the bigger, larger thing is, and this is why I say, we need to, the, the thing, I think the big point he's trying to make is, we need to submit ourselves to the overall sovereignty of God. That he is working all things out, eventually, for his glory and our good. Even in the midst of what seems to be, like, this doesn't make sense. I'm supposed to give money to somebody that's a pagan? Here's what I mean. This is why this is profound. At any moment, God could in this first century, swoop down and destroy Caesar completely, who opposed him. And he could at any moment do that, and then set up his kingdom right now. Like right then, he could just do it. But instead, he doesn't do that. He tells his people, these first century hearers, to patiently endure in this particular time, looking forward to the sovereign hand of God, who will eventually set up his kingdom, and even saying, render under Caesar what is Caesar's, because there is a coming kingdom one day, where he will restore all things. And so he's saying, in this, in this tough time, be a good citizen, but wholly submit yourself to the sovereignty of God that I am working all things eventually for God's glory and our good. That's kind of the big picture thing that we should get out of this. A teaching for present kingdom life is, it's not perfect, but we trust in the sovereignty of God that he is l- legitimately and seriously sovereign. That means really in control of everything. Everything. He's really in control of it all. Everything that's going on in our government right now or in any government for all times, God is completely in control. It's not out of his hands. And he's saying sovereignly and patiently wait for that final one day when I I come again. So that's the first one. Um, And as you see here, 22, when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. They like tucked their tails between their legs. We don't have any idea. They're going to come back again. They're making their little comeback in 34, but it's to no avail. Um, so now it says in 23, the same day the Sadducees came to him. Um, now, this is a little bit different. As I said, the Herodians were kind of the, uh, the political enemies of the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the theological enemies of the Pharisees. They were not friends whatsoever at all. Um, and the Sadducees were kind of uh, the original... Liberal, Bible, theological liberals, if you were. About a hundred and something years ago, there's this guy named Rudolf Bultmann that came up and kind of changed the way that Bible interpretation happens, maybe almost 200 years ago, um, where 150. But basically, he said, uh, The Bible is just all myths. It's all just kind of stories. None of it's really real. It's not authoritative. It's got some stuff in it that we can live by, and it just put us on a trajectory towards, um, really misinterpreting, I think, what is the point of scripture completely. And so, you know, the Sadducees were like the original Boutmanians, if you will, from 2000 years ago. They just interpreted as in a demythological style where it's all just, whatever, it's not real. Like it's, it's all just, they were theological liberals, basically. Um, and because of the fact that they were theological liberals, they didn't believe in an afterlife. Um, that's why you're going to see here, it says the Sadducees came to him, um, who say that there is no resurrection. They're they're talking about us as believers. After we die, they say there's no afterlife. There's there's no real resurrection. That's all just kind of fake fairy tale stuff there in the Bible. We don't believe in that kind of stuff. And so they want to come to him and try to trap him. And they want to talk about what is their belief, um, the fact that there's no afterlife. And so that's their method by coming to try to do this. Now, the way you can remember this, this is how I teach my kids, and it's going to be ingrained in your head forever now. Um, The pharisees were the conservatives they hated jesus as well but they were the conservatives and they believed in an afterlife and that's fair you see but the sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife and that's sad you see so that's the way you can remember it from now on stuck in your head forever and boo that's brutal but hey man Talked to my theology professor. He's the one that said that way. And I was like, that's a good idea to remember it. So the same day, the Sadducees, who don't believe in the afterlife, came to him. They don't believe in a resurrection. And they came to Jesus. And again, they started with the flowerly, empty, flattery uh, teacher. Um, And so this is where it gets really good because... the Sadducees really love all the Old Testament. They really love what's known as the Pentateuch. This is penta meaning five, the first five books of the Bible. So they're going to quote Moses, who we believe wrote the Pentateuch. Um, they're going to quote Moses. They had a love affair with this Pentateuch. They loved it. And so they're going to quote Moses and some teachings that were going on in Deuteronomy 25 and try to stump Jesus. And what's awesome is that like later on, Jesus is going to take the Pentateuch, their beloved part of the Old Testament, and turn it on him and, make him look silly. This, I love that he, he does that. Um, anyway, so it says, Moses um, said, a man dies having no children. So in Deuteronomy 25, five and six, there was a law that said um, a man is married to a woman. If they die and she has no, ch- she ha- if he dies and she has no children, the next brother is by law obligated to marry her. So <laughs> like... Which is pretty weird, because like, if he marries crazy, then you got to marry crazy, and you're like, this don't sound good. Um, some of y'all know what I'm talking about, right? So, you're like, looking forward, like, not me. Mm-mm. So uh, anyway, so anyway, here it is. It says, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. If she doesn't have children, he's obli- he must come and try to have children. And he they're going to throw this little hypothetical situation on down the line where it says now. There were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no children, left to his wife, to his brother. So to the second and the third and down to the seventh, after them all, after all all the men died, the woman died too. And so you've got a successive thing where seven brothers all married this woman and then she died and there were no children whatsoever. So they come with this scenario and they have a question. They say, in the resurrection, which we don't believe, by the way, Jesus, and you believe it so much. So in that final day... um, of, of these seven, whose wife will she be? Here's, here's the seven men, and here's her, and they're in heaven. Which one is she married to? You know, Which one's going on? And I say, which I said you know, when we referenced Matthew 19 before, these Sadducees are asking the wrong question. The, the right question is, what is this crazy woman doing to these men? Like, that's the real question. What is she doing to them? And uh, when it says here, when it finishes, it says, In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they for they all had her, I think more accurately is she had all them. Um, she was doing something to them, who knows what it was, um, but that's just an aside. So back to the actual real question is, um, whose, whose husband is, she, or I'm sorry, whose wife is she going to be out of all these seven brothers? Now, there's a problem here, okay? The Sadducees, who don't believe in a resurrection or, or an afterlife... let's just say afterlife so it's not as confusing... they don't believe in an afterlife... Um, they're coming into this conversation... number one, not believing in it... and with false presuppositions... they, they believe things inaccurately about things... and so this is... here's the, one of the first presuppositions is... their question... of which they don't even believe in the afterlife... but they're saying in our, in our hypothetical situation... we think that if there is an afterlife... it has to be an exact counterpart to earthly life... In earth, there's marriage and all this kind of stuff. So therefore, in and, and the afterlife, it has to be the exact same. And here Jesus is going to say, the afterlife is not like this. And <laughs> I'm God, and I can make it that way. Because I'm, I'm God. Like, I can, I can do that. It's no big deal. And so, um, and he's also going to tell him that you've read Moses here in Deuteronomy 25, and your beloved Pentateuch that you think you know so well you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't, you don't understand the Bible. And so he's going to get pretty direct with them right here. And he says, and Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures. So he's telling them the beloved Pentateuch you love, you don't understand. He's going to start jabbing them here in a little bit, um, little, little, little words of jab. And the next thing is, nor do you understand the power of God. In other words, well, I'll get to that in a second. So he, he tells them they're basically wrong in two huge respects. And um, the first one is, you don't know the scriptures. There's at least three places in the Old Testament, among many others, where there's a promised afterlife. One's in Isaiah 26:19, Another one's in Daniel 12:2, Another one's in Job 19, where basically these particular verses say, um, after people died, there was a place where they went, where they were um, still alive, though not physically, and with God. There was an afterlife given to men. And so he's saying, you, you don't even know the scriptures. That's, that's just three. But he also says, you don't know the power of God. Um, in other words, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like, there was nothing. And all of a sudden, God created everything. If you can believe that, certainly you can believe that God has the power to do anything else, like make sure there's an afterlife. There was nothing. And then there was all this stuff if we can make the, the, the theological belief of saying, I, I agree to that, then certainly we can say, well, if God has that power, then God's power is pretty large. And I can also believe that he's, able to, he's also able to do anything when it, when it comes to an afterlife. So that's, that's the two things that he lets them know that they don't understand. So let's, let's look at his answer. Um, you don't understand... You're wrong. You don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. And he goes, for in the resurrection, and this means the afterlife. Verse 30 is quite interesting. It carries with it a lot of interesting things. For in the resurrection, they neither marry. So you came with the presupposition that we're married in the afterlife, but we're not. That's that's what's wrong. That's one of the first things that's wrong. For they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Which means for people that are in Christ, whenever we're in heaven, whenever we're there... We will be present with our spouses, but we will not be married. So it, your question doesn't matter because she wouldn't be married to any of these guys. No one's married in heaven. Um, it's an interesting thing. Like, we never think, like, I was having a, Christian. and I always have conversations about this every once in a while. I'm like, so you're going to be in heaven, and you're like, we're not going to be married. It's going to be so weird to look at you and be like, well, this was my former wife. But the interesting thing is, um, not only are we not given in marriage, the, The deduction that we can make then is this, and this is an aside, but I think it's important um, because it, for us, magnifies for us the um, profoundness of perfections of Christ that we'll enjoy. When we're in heaven, something we can deduce from this is that there is no sex in heaven, which means... Not only is there no sex, but the fact that we are in heaven and we're not lamenting the fact that we don't enjoy a physical pleasure of earth is because of the profoundness of the perfection of Jesus. We're so enamored and so satisfied with the presence of Jesus that we're not lamenting the physical pleasures of earth. That's amazing to consider how beautiful being in heaven with Christ will be, that we're not even lamenting the fact that it's gone. We're not married nor given in marriage in heaven. And we're not sad that we don't have some of the, the gifts that God gives us here that that make up physical pleasures. Um, so we're, we're not married nor given in marriage in heaven. And then 31, and he goes, and as for the resurrection of the dead or the, the, the afterlife, have you not read, I'm sorry, I skipped something. They're not given in marriage. I, I, I skipped one little... One little jab that Jesus gives them in 30. For the resurrection, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. The angels aren't married. Uh, the jab is the Sadducees don't believe in the angels. And so he's like, oh, you know the angels you don't believe in? That's what it's like, jab. You know, they are real. So he just kind of gives them a little jab. And then first, verse 31, it says, And as for the resurrection of the dead or the, uh, the afterlife, have you not read what was said to you by God? And then he's going to quote here Exodus 3 6. This is Exodus 3 6. If you're unfamiliar, kind of with the, the context of this particular quote, basically, you've all probably heard of the burning bush. If you've been in Sunday school or whatever, you know the bush that's burning and never actually gets burnt. Um, so, whenever that happens, Moses sees all this and he's like, um, what's going on here and who are you? I don't understand. And the, the tree, uh, it's really God, kind of t- speaks back, if you will, and says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses was an Israelite and Abraham was the father of Israel. And so Moses knew who, who those people were. And he's like, oh, then you're my God. And so he knows that I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So as Jesus is quoting this to the Sadducees who don't believe in an afterlife, he's using Moses one of their beloved, to turn it on them and make them see that they don't know what they're talking about, that they don't understand the scriptures. He says, "Um, have you not read, which is a jab, "um, what was said to you by God? Anytime Jesus says to the religious leaders, haven't you read? Like he's getting them. Um, It says 32, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And, And then Jesus adds this little part, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So he's pointing back to Exodus 3, 6, and this is what it means. So here we have Moses standing. This is, this is Exodus 3, 6 right here. So Moses is standing in Exodus 3, 6, and he's walking up, and he sees this burning bush, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And he says, God says, I am, present tense, the God. Not I was, because Moses, and I'm sorry, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived hundreds of years before Moses. And he's like, who are you? He doesn't say, I am. Um, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when they are alive. But he's saying, they died. And after they died, they're still alive in heaven with me. And I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which means, they're not dead. I'm not the God of the dead, but of the living. And you're thinking, well, okay, so they died physically, but they're still living. Which takes this whole idea of the afterlife and says, Sadducees, you're wrong. Because he's saying, I am right now the God of these particular people living. Though they died physically, they're still alive right now. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what Moses is saying. Um, that's what God's saying to Moses. And so Jesus quotes Moses, which is so awesome because they wanted to quote Moses. He goes, oh, we can talk about Moses. That's good. I, I'm going to show you how you don't understand the scriptures. This is what happened to Moses. Remember that? You don't understand the Bible. And so he, he, he helps them see that, that God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... Because they were still alive. And he says, I'm not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then verse 33 again says, when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So we have in verse 22, they marvel. In verse 33, they're astonished, which, is, which should be the, the, the posture of us. You know, we should be amazed and astonished at this man who has the power to confound people who are trying to trap him. So the second teaching then is this. The first one is that we should live as good citizens of both state and heaven. The second one is is not like the Sadducees, we should then live dependent on the holy word of God. We should live dependent on knowing the word of God and and trusting God's power because they believe there's not heaven awaiting them. They believe there's no afterlife, but we know there actually is heaven awaiting us. And since there is heaven awaiting us, present kingdom life then therefore necessitates for us to be completely dependent upon the word of God and know it they didn't know it but we should know it it's going to how ha- it's going to be the thing that informs us towards holiness so we must know the word of God not only that we should also trust God's power they didn't trust God's power they like afterlife that's impossible God can't do that they just believed we lived for 70 80 30 50 years whatever and we just die and we're just like annihilated and that's the end of our existence and like this this is God of course he can create an afterlife for us and he does the scriptures point to that. And so for us, the teaching that we get from this is we must, as believers in Jesus, live dependent upon the word of God. So we live as good citizens um, of the state, but primarily of, of, the, of the kingdom, I'm sorry, of heaven. That's, for, that's number one. The second teaching is that we live totally dependent on, while we're here on the word of God and God's power because heaven does truly await us after we die. Now, the last one is in verse thirty-four. So here's the third conversation. The Pharisees, they, you know, they need to regroup. It says the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, and they're like, yes, they like that because they don't really like Jesus. But they think they've got a good one here. And they gather together and one of them, a lawyer. ESV says lawyer. Um, this isn't like, you know, lawyers today where they know like state law and federal law. This is actually a lawyer like of the Bible. Like they know the law in in the sense of the first five books of the Bible. They were a law expert. is probably the better way to say it. They're a law expert when it comes to the Old Testament. Um, And this law expert and the Pharisees, when they looked at the law, you know, there's this big list of all these laws. They believed that you can make some distinctions among the laws. They say, you know, here's the big list of all the laws. It's not like all of them carry the same weight whatsoever. They believed that in the law, that there were some parts of the law of Scripture that were great and some parts of the Scripture that were small. Some parts of the law that were heavy and some parts of the law that were light, which is why they refer to Deuteronomy as heavy D. Um, so that's just a joke. Um, so anyway, which makes us understand that in verse 37, when Jesus says, you should love the Lord, you should have nothing but love for everybody. So um, that's brutal. Anyway, uh, it didn't work first service and it didn't work second. So, um, But the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together... I referenced a 90s rapper is what I did, in case you're wondering what I did. There's a guy named Heavy D and the Boys, and he had a song called Nothing But Love back in like the 94. So anyway, um, that was back in my day. So back in, back when the Pharisees had heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered, they gathered together. I'm so like wanting to sing it to you, but I'm not. Um, and one of the... One of the lawyer asked a question. They, they kind of had, this Pharisees had a, had a belief that these laws have a little bit of weight. Some are more important than the other. We really think this, this law expert's like, they have to have some more weight than the other. Which one's more important? And Jesus, I mean, this is so Amazing. He just confounds them. He takes the law, and what he does is he synthesizes or puts together, um he's quoting he's gonna quote Deuteronomy six five and Leviticus nineteen eighteen. I think it's nineteen eight or maybe nineteen eight. He's gonna synthesize all the law down here into one particular thing, which the old testament does, where he says this, which one's the greatest commandment in the law? And he says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You want to know which one's the best law? Like, how do I keep it all? He said, bring it all together and say, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You do that, you'll keep the 600 laws of the Old Testament. And so he kind of brings it all together for him. Um, So... He's going to give a second answer as well. But before we get into that, I want to talk about heart, soul, and mind. Heart, soul, and mind. Because a lot of us, it, we, we think about human beings. And we know that we're made up of a heart. We know that we're made up of soul. And we know that we're made up of a mind. And we want to... Um, anthropologically, it just means with, with a, as, as a man, kind of separate those things out into three categories and, and try to understand these things as mutually exclusive categories. And But really, these three things, since we're a whole being, really overlap with each other. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to love the Lord your God with everything of who you are. I want, that, I want it to overlap. I want you to love me with all of your affections. I want you to love me with all of your life. I want you to love me with all of your intellect and mind. Every every emotion that you feel, I want it to be directed towards love. Every life decision, I want that to be connected to the affections and to love me. And with your mind, as you read, I want it to be connected to your actions, connected to your affections so that your mind and your intellect and your life and your thoughts and all of your affections are put into this whole thing. And I want you to love the Lord your God as much as you can with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength by the power of the Spirit. That's how you obey the law. Now, I want you to stop with me and let's just think about this word love because this word love, especially in English, we only have one, it's just abused. Like, I love cheeseburgers. I love God. And like, I don't love God like I love cheeseburgers, but I'm using the same word. And so we have to, we have to take a step back and say, when I say I love cheeseburgers, which I do, I mean, I just love them and I love God. Like, I don't mean that that's equal. And so let's, let's, Separate cheeseburgers. We're getting close to lunch. And, and, and lift up for us what we would can try to consider and, and, and conceive of what would be the proper love of God that we as, as children of God should have. I mean, just consider what are all the words and, 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 and modifiers and extra things that we would want to try to add and put in there and, 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 and help us understand this love of God that we have. We, would, we'd throw, we wouldn't just say love. Like we would want to add lots of stuff and put all that. And he's saying that, consider how big and how broad and how vast and how amazing that love is. He goes, I want you to love me with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. That love that you have, it's, it's so vast and so beyond cheeseburgers. Like it's huge. Now don't miss this, okay? Because there's a little, there's a little phrase in 39 that should, should jolt us a little bit. That same love you have for God the creator of all things we can all conceive of this amazingly huge proper love we should have for him look at this the second I'm sorry this is great in the fir- of the first commandment and here it is 39 the second is like it I mean a lot of times we think I love God like vastly love God yeah I love people too they don't do me wrong I'll, I'll even make them like them a little more and he's saying it's like it with the all the bigness that we think of and conceive of of the love for God, we should let that, that vast love spill over into our love for other people. And it should be vast and it should be servant-oriented and it should be others-focused and not selfish and humble. It should be huge as it pours into the love of other people. Not just, yeah, I love other people. But this he's saying it should be like it. How do we love God? We should love our neighbors in the exact same way. So here's the third present teaching for kingdom life. We're, we're not in heaven yet. Here we are. And as we're here, what's the third teaching? Is that we should love God and neighbor I mean, deeply. But we would add so many things to that word. So if you want to add all the other things you want to add to the word deeply. Um, it's hard to even put around and with good definition. The, the depth of love we should have for God and for our neighbor. Because our love for neighbor should be like it. When it comes to our love for God. D.A. Carson looking at this says. True love demands abandonment of self to God. And God alone is the adequate incentive for such abandonment. You won't abandon if it's not for God. Love of self. Let me read it one more time. True love demands abandonment of self to God. And God alone is the adequate incentive for such abandonment love. So this week I'm reading um, a Tim Keller book um, on church planning. And in one of the chapters, he kind of like footnotes an Edwards writing. Um, And so I have to go to, I got to read it. You know, I got, if you're quoting somebody, I got to go read that. So I go over to Edwards and as I'm reading that, um, there's one particular section on neighbor love that Edwards writes that I think is really applicable to this for us. And it helps us put, maybe put some, some good um, handles on what neighbor love might look like. Some real practical, everyday advice on what it might look like. Interestingly enough, Edwards says this neighbor love that we're supposed to have, and he doesn't delineate when he talks about neighbor love between Christians and non. He just says, neighbors. So, I know we can look at First John and say, first to the Christian and then to the not. But I think let, here, let's just kind of set it out as neighbors. All Christians and non-Christians. We're supposed to love them all. Um, interestingly enough though, Edwards says, that this love for neighbor, he calls it the rules of the gospel. That's interesting. So, based on the declaration of God that you are now, by faith in Him, declared 100% righteous before God, e- right now, in this moment, whatever age you are, even though you're not perfected yet in heaven where you don't sin, but right now, God has declared you completely righteous. A rule of the gospel is, based on that glorious truth, I should go out and live a certain way that reflects that that's true. And I should want to, and based on that declaration, it gives me the motivation to actually go live that way. I'm so amazed by the fact that he's declared me completely righteous, of no merit of my own. A rule of the gospel is that, I should have this kind of particular neighbor love. And this is what he says. Um, I'm going to try to make it understandable because Edwards, wow, um, he's hard to understand. He says, be obliged, be obligated to give to others. Christians should be obligated to give to others when we cannot, uh, when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. In other words, if you are going to help somebody else, you should do it. And when you do it, you should actually receive some level of their burden on your shoulders. If they have a burden or suffering, Christians are obligated to go and take some of it off of that person and put it on themselves and bear that suffering with them, even if it's all their fault. It's all all your fault. You dug that hole. I'll pray for you. That doesn't cost me anything. So that's what I'm going to do. Pray for you. But help you. I'm not taking your burden on. You made those bonehead decisions, not me. But what he's saying is, neighbor love, the rule of the gospel is that we are obligated to give ourselves to others when we cannot do it without suffering. He says, as if our neighbor's difficulties and necessities be much greater than our own, if our neighbors are suffering much more than us when we see that he is not likely to otherwise be relieved, there's nothing he can do, we should be willing to suffer with him and to take part of his burden on ourselves. Or how is it that we're going to live out the rule of bearing one another's burdens? How is that going to be fulfilled? That's pretty interesting because that is not my nature. Real practically, I have these particular things that I spend my money on this this month. I should be willing to... Take out something that actually is going to cause a little bit of burden on me and take it and give it to this particular person and bear his burden and literally do without and shoulder that with him and walk him through it. That's really practically what it means. Take out an expense of something you want and need. We're not talking about overflow. We're talking about feeling a burden here. That's what he says neighbor love should cause us to do. Though we may not have superfluity, meaning... You might not have a whole lot of money. We all know that, right? We ain't got no money. Uh, He's saying, even though you don't have money, yet you should still be obligated, even with a tiny amount of money, to afford or to give relief to others that are in more greater necessity than you. This is what he says. This is the best one. If there be no other way of relief for them, those who have the lightest burden, so there's a group of people, they're all suffering. Whoever has the lightest amount of suffering, then they are obligated to still take on some part of their neighbor's burden to make it more supportable for them. I think that this is a good picture for us of what it means to be um, loving our neighbor as ourself. And here's the be- most beautiful thing. He calls it the rule of the gospel. Because that's what Jesus did. He willingly let go of his burdens or took on all of our... He, he, he could have had stuff, glory in heaven. He willingly came. And not only did he take some of it, he literally took all of the burdens off of us, sin, and put it on himself on the cross. And so the gospel or the cross of Jesus for us is our example of exactly how we're supposed to carry out neighbor love. Now, we can't do it to the degree Jesus did, but it certainly serves for us in principle as an example. That's why it's a rule... Of the gospel. Just absolutely beautiful. This picture that he gives us. And then Jesus finishes off. As he says. It's like you shall love your neighbors as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. All the law and prophets are summarized. With love the Lord your God. With all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And the only way that you're going to do that. Is if you um, consider yourself completely righteous before God. You know who you are because of the gospel. And now that, now that I love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, the only way I'm going to be able to love my neighbor as myself is if I love. I can't do this one, the second commandment, without the first. There's no way I'm going to love my neighbor as myself without loving the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he says they're all depending upon together. And then verse 41 switches and Jesus says, any more questions? Good, now it's my turn. I want to help you all understand. You've asked me all these things, and I've given you pretty straightforward answers, and you're thinking to yourself, how is it that this man has all this authority to start asking us all these particular questions? And what Jesus is going to do, he's going to do something called Christology, which is just saying um, uh, the doctrine of the study of who Jesus Christ really is. You think I'm just a prophet. You think I'm just a man. I'm about to show you I'm not just a man. I'm not just a prophet, but I truly am the God, the Son of God, the the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. I'm not just a son of David. I am the Lord of David, God himself. That's how I can say all these things. And so for us, that's, the, that's kind of the application for those first century readers. But for us, the application of this next section is he's told us these three teachings on present kingdom life. He's told us that we are supposed to Live as good citizens, both of state and heaven. He's told us to live dependent on the word of God, holy and wait on Jesus to come because there really is an afterlife. He's told us to love God and neighbor deeply. How is it that he has the authority to tell us? He's going to tell us in 41 because he's God. That's how we're that's why we're supposed to um, obey these things he's told us. In verse 41, it says the Pharisees gathered. Jesus said, I've got a question for you. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? You know the Old Testament. You know this Messiah that's supposed to be coming. What do you think about him? And he says, whose son is he? And they throw out the, the pat pharisaical response, which is, oh, he's the son of David, you know. We know back in the Old Testament, there's David and this king that's supposed to come, the Messiah, the promised Messiah, he's in the lineage, in the genealogy of David. So he's the son of David. David is this great, 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 great granddaddy. And so, that, and in some measure, in a simplistic sense, this is true. It says, um, they say to him, the son of God. And then Jesus said to him, how then is it that David... In the spirit, meaning inspired by God as he's penning, Psalm 110 verse 1 writes this. You're thinking on the simplistic level that the Messiah is just the, the son, 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 son son of David. But he's not just the simplistic son of David. He's also something much more profound and much more glorious than that. And he says, as he wrote Psalm 110 1, in the spirit, saying to the Pharisees, they, they have a very conservative view of the scriptures. He calls him Lord. He's saying, the Lord said to my Lord, David said to the Lord, sit at my right hand. So David says to not his great, 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 great grandson, but says to my Lord, my kurios that's the Greek word, meaning the sovereign, the God over all things, the one who is in charge of everything. So he's not just a long line of lineage son that comes in the line of David, but this Messiah is also God supreme there's no question about who he is. He's doing some Christology, helping them see Jesus is saying that Jesus is not just a man and a good prophet, but he's God himself. And he's standing right here in front of them. And he's telling them this and saying, you need to heed the words that I'm saying. I'm speaking with much more authority than you could imagine. And he says, how the Lord said, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your footstall. Then David If then David calls him Lord, how is he a son? He is a son, but he's also much more important than that. He's Lord. And this so confounds the Pharisees, you can see. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. 24 hours later, the false trial would be happening. So for us, as we read this last section, Jesus has um, shown us, that he has the authority to tell them that they need to know who he is. But also for us, he has had the last word and he's telling us, you must obey who I am because I'm God. This is what he's telling us. And so therefore, when he tells us then that we are to live as good citizens, both of state and heaven, we need to stop and ask ourselves, are we doing that? When he says that you should live dependent upon the word of God, Because heaven truly awaits us. The question for you then is. Are you a person that knows the scriptures? Are you like the Sadducees? Are you a person that trusts the authority of the scriptures? Are you like the Sadducees? Are you someone that doesn't believe in the power of God? Are you like the Sadducees? He wants you to. Be so dependent upon the scriptures every day when you wake up. I need to see and experience and have a deep longing for the affections of Christ this morning. I want to see who he is and be reminded of what he's done for me so that I can walk in obedience this this day for him. So that I can obey, number one, be a good citizen of this particular state and of heaven. So that I can love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and my neighbor as deeply as he's called me to do. Are those things happening in your life? Or are you just meandering by through life? Living selfishly. Don't forget the D.A. Carson quote where he says that true love demands abandonment of self to God. It demands abandonment of self to God. And God alone is the adequate incentive for such abandonment. So we're going to go into a time now where we come to the table and we celebrate the fact that Jesus has given his body and his blood for us. Um, We're going to have a song that Owen's going to sing for us as we do that. And so what I want you to do then is during this time of reflection, um, before you come forward or to the back and get the bread and the juice, I want you to think on some of the things we've talked about and just ask, where am I in regard to these things? Is there a deep love? Do I care about society? Am I a good citizen? Do I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do I love my neighbor as myself? And when you do, if you don't, the good news is, if you're in Christ, is that you are completely forgiven in Christ. And you can walk now outside of this room ready to do those things because he has empowered you by the spirit. You are not condemned Instead, you are forgiven. Therefore, when we come to the table and we consider who we are in Christ, we celebrate his body broken for us for the forgiveness of our sins. We celebrate his bloodshed for the forgiveness of our sins. Because in Christ, all those things are made new. And now we can walk out in glorious resurrection, knowing that we can do these things by the power of the Spirit. And so, let's spend some time in reflection, not just where you are, but also rejoicing over what Christ has done. And during the song, when you're ready, you can come forward or to the back and get both. And then just bring it back to your chair. And then I'll lead us through a time of the Lord's Supper after that. I'm gonna pray and then we'll go into this time. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I pray that all of us right now would quiet our minds, quiet our hearts, quiet our spirits and reflect on who you are and what you've done. And though there's places in our hearts and minds where we aren't living for your glory, that... If there's places of repentance that needs to happen, we would do that. But always repentance is meant to push us to the good news of the gospel, the glorious goodness of Christ for us. Repentance always leads to joy. So as we reflect on places that we need to think about uh, where we aren't walking with you, remind us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Remind us that Jesus has already accomplished everything that needs to happen on the cross for us and remind us of the imputed righteousness, the God-given declaration of innocence now declared of us because of Jesus and his death on the cross and the resurrection that followed. May this time at the table at the Lord's Supper be a sweet time of celebration. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.